0: Well good morning, it's great to see you all here again this morning on this uh, beautiful winter day and it's uh, my privilege this morning to continue our uh, study in the book of Acts and we're at quite a critical juncture in this particular book this morning, so if you remember the uh, purpose of the book of Acts is uh, clearly shown in the first chapter and it when you read it, it says this, "But uh, you will receive power, and this is Jesus talking to the apostles, saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And as we roll out through this book, you will see there is critical times where the, the gospel is proclaimed in each of these regions. It's like an earthquake of seismic proportions where you have the epicenter. And the epicenter here is, is Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all people. And the gospel, like a seismic earthquake, continues to reverberate throughout the world from that point on right down to Kilsai South in Australia in 2016. See, contextually, we've been pretty much in Jerusalem right up until this point in time in our story in the book of Acts. We've seen Peter preach on two occasions. 3,000 are saved, 5,000 are saved. We have 8,000 Saved. They form new communities, which is called the church. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the remembering of the Lord, the breaking of bread, table fellowship, and to common community, to fellowship, to deep fellowship. And as they did this, all those around about them saw. With enthusiasm, what was happening? Except the religious elite. Except the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the council that looked after the temple. Because they hated the name of Jesus. Hated what Jesus of Nazareth stood for. They hated to see the way in which God was actually transforming their city. So they thought, we'll grab the ringleaders, we'll grab the apostles, we'll persecute them. And the apostles, what do they do? After they have been beaten, after they had been enslaved, they prayed for boldness. Wonderful words in, in Acts chapter 4, where they cry out to the Lord, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And then we see the life of the church is starting to get kind of busy. And there are things that are happening and the apostles say we can't control everything. We need to appoint seven Men who are full of the spirit. To help with the practical needs. To help with the table fellowship of of the ongoing community. And we saw this last week as Stephen was one of these men. And he was falsely accused by the Pharisees and the council. And it cost him his life. And this morning, we come across another one of these deacons, Philip, and the impact that he has on the proclamation of the gospel. So, if you could turn with me to Acts chapter 8, and we will read the first 25 verses. Acts 8, halfway through the first verse. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip As he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and being baptized by, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You see, men throughout history have always, always tried to stop the spread of the gospel. This is not a new thing. We are introduced to Saul, a man who is described as ravaging the church. Ravaging the church in such a way that his sole aim and sole goal was to cause harm, to injure, to damage to spoil, to ruin, to destroy. He hated the name of Jesus. I don't think we understand quite how much this hatred is for him to go out trying to tear apart this new community. He was going from house to house. Why? Because that's where the new community was gathering. We read that back in Acts 2. When they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship, it was in a house. And Paul saw this, knew this, and he thought in his heart and his mind that this was completely against God's will. Because, you know, he was a righteous fellow in relation to the law. We talk, that's told to us later in scripture. He was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. He knew the laws. He knew the rules. He was a pious man. And yet he hated the name of Jesus. But you know what? The gospel and its power is greater than the hatred of man. Don't ever forget that. When it comes to witnessing, when it comes to evangelizing, when it comes to sharing the name of Jesus with people, the power to do that is greater than any power of man. Because what we see here and contextually is that through this great persecution, the gospel spreads. The gospel spreads. And we have a lay person, we we're introduced to Philip earlier on in Acts chapter uh, 6, where he's one of the seven. And you say, well, why is this not Philip the Apostle? Because the context tells us it's not Philip the Apostle. Verse 1 tells us specifically that all the apostles remained in Jerusalem. So there we have Philip, I'll call him the evangelist, the deacon, the evangelist because of this persecution he was full of the spirit that's what we know about him he was full of grace and truth and he decided to go down to Samaria Now, when you look at a, a map of Israel I'm sorry that some of these names aren't red. blue on blue is not a good uh, communication technique but uh, here we go This is uh, the way Israel was uh, broken up at the time of the church birth. You have Jerusalem here, and Jerusalem's up on a hill. So whenever you read in Scripture, it talks about, and they went down, it means they're not going south or north or east or west. It means they're actually descending down from Jerusalem. Okay, so... They went down, and Philip went down somewhere into this area here, Samaria. The text doesn't tell us actually what city. Okay? It could be uh, Shechem, or it could be the city of Samaria itself. They are the two most likely candidates here. Why Shechem? Shechem was the religious center for Samaria. So it's not very far from Jerusalem to Samaria, and if you had a skateboard, it would probably take you about five minutes because it is a pretty steep descent. All right? Uh, so that's that's where Philip went. And he's in this area called Samaria. And why was this different to Judah? We read in Scripture quite a lot about Samaria. And uh, we know historically that in... Uh, 677 BC the the king of Assyria at the time came into that area and deported all the Jews out of Samaria sorry that was in 721 and 677 the king of Assyria brought some of the captives back and with a whole lot of mix of other people they amalgamated uh, the Jews that were still in the land with other ethnic groups so you read right through scripture here, especially in the New Testament, that uh, there was this ongoing, almost civil hatred between Samaria and Judah. There was a bitter enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it you know, continued through the time of our Lord when he walked on earth here. Because the Jews had no dealings with Samaria. If they wanted to go up to Galilee, they would actually bypass the place, walk out of Jerusalem, go out to here and go up this way. They wouldn't even walk through the land. And uh, our Lord himself was called a Samaritan as a, almost a, a, uh, a title of content. It was like me calling you a Kiwi. You know, you're all just a bunch of kiwis. Similar sort of thing to that. No, no, not quite. I think you still like us, but but there is this inbuilt hatred for the the Samaritans by the Jews, and now you have Philip, a Jew, going to share the good news in Samaria. You see, the Samaritans are didn't share the same view as the Jews when it came to their view of the Messiah. They were waiting and expecting a a Messiah like Moses. And as you read in some of their documents, uh, they would call this Messiah Tehib, which means restorer. They would take very seriously Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, and and uh, this is the type of Messiah that they were expecting, a Messiah that would come, uh, perform miracles, restore the law, renew worship, and, and bring knowledge to other nations. That was different to the Jewish Messiah because the Jewish Messiah uh, that was waited for and, and promised was one that was an end-times ruler, if you want a big term, an eschatological ruler, someone that would rule the world through the line of David, as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's the type of the Messiah that the Jews are waiting for, different to what the Samaritans were waiting for. And because of this sort of religious divide, what the Samaritans had done, they didn't want to go down to Jerusalem to worship there. So I guess it's a bit like Melbonians or Victorians and New South Wales people, right? As Melbonians, we'll we'll go to the MCG to worship. We think the MCG is the greatest because we have the grand final and we we have the Boxing Day test. You speak to a New South Welshman, they'll go and worship at the SCG because that is the place of central... uh, focus for them when it comes to rugby league and to the New New Day cricket, or New, new Year's cricket match. So what the Samaritans had done, they said, okay, well, we're not going down there to worship because we actually don't agree with you. We're going to set up a place of worship at Mount Garrison. And you remember the famous time that Jesus comes and meets the, the Samaritan woman at the well? And they had that wonderful dialogue in John 4 and and uh, she says to Jesus, well, we worship there and you worship there. Where is the right place to worship? And Jesus turns to her and says, those who worship in spirit and truth. It's not about the place. It's about the heart. So for the Samaritans, Mount Garrison was the center of worship. And they only recognized the Pentateuch. That was their scriptures. They only had the first five books and even that was slightly altered in some areas. It, was, it differed quite considerably from the Jewish Masoretic text. So as the gospel is spread, firstly, it's amazing that Philip is in this situation. He's a Jew in a city in Samaria proclaiming the Messiah. Christ he's not an apostle, he's a layperson. he's been captivated by the gospel in his own heart and not only does he have a love for a people group that his culture says you do not love, he goes. He is willing take all his prejudices aside, to take all his views about this ethnic group and go. Sure, it was just his neighbors. Didn't have to go far. But the Lord had worked in his heart. He was full of the Spirit and he knew he had to proclaim Christ to a lost people. And we read, he has some great success. The crowds gather. They're astounded because as Philip proclaims, there's there's wonders, there's signs, there's authentication of what is going on. God is blessing what is going on through healings, through exorcisms, through paralyzed or lame being healed. And there's much joy in the city as for the first time they hear about Jesus Christ. Because notice what is the primary importance to Philip. Please notice this in verse 4. The the primary thing for him is to preach the word. Circle that in your Bibles because as we go through chapter 8, you're going to see this often. Philip's primary strategy as an evangelist was to preach the word to display who Christ was through the scriptures. Now he didn't have the New Testament scriptures, so he used the Old. Don't forget that either. As you see what Philip does. And we come across a an interesting scene here because In Samaria, there was this fellow by the name of Simon who was a magician, who was a demigod. He claimed himself to be Simon the Great, if you like. And he had been wowing the folks of Samaria for a long time, according to this text. He'd been uh, showing great magic. And uh, they called him great and they'd paid attention to his tricks for a long time. You see, in the culture, uh, in this culture, to to perform magic tricks, what the, the major premise behind that was is you'd go to someone who had done it before and you would pay money and say, show me how this trick works so I can show this before the crowd. That was historically what used to happen for magicians in those days. But you see, an amazing thing happened here in in that Simon was looking at what Philip was doing. He saw what Philip did. He heard the news. And we're told that he was even baptized. Along with others. A great reason to rejoice, perhaps. And then we have this new scene that folds out from 14 through to 25 where we have the apostles come to Samaria. And this is a an interesting part of the story. Why did the apostles have to come? Secondly, why has the Holy Spirit not already fallen on these people? Surely that's contrary to Acts chapter 2, where Acts 2 38 or 39 says this and Peter said to them talking to the crowd repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself so earlier in Acts we see this whole fact that when these 3000 these 5000 come to faith in Christ they immediately receive the spirit So why the difference here all of a sudden in Acts chapter 8? You see, churches divide over this stuff. You may not be aware of this, but churches divide over this type of thing. Your Pentecostal church will take this as saying, okay, well, clearly this is a second work of the Holy Spirit and and it's accompanied with signs and wonders, so therefore you're not saved unless you have the second work of the Holy Spirit. that will be one view. Catholic tradition will take this particular portion and say, because of uh, things a little bit later down here, that the Spirit can only be conferred to you by somebody else. These are the things that we wrestle with as we look at the text. So why is this? Why was this necessary? Because when someone believes and puts their faith and trust in Christ, is it not the Spirit of God that opens up their hearts? Absolutely. Absolutely. But why was the Spirit not received? Why was there some form of uh, confirmation by the apostles? I'll give you a brief explanation. You may not agree with it. That's okay. Um, just don't talk to me about it. No, I'm joking. I, I think this is a, a, a fascinating thing because this is not the only time an accident occurs. It occurs on three occasions. We have it here in Acts 8 we have it in our next chapter and we'll discuss that next week as Paul is saved and then we have it in Acts 11 where Peter preaches to Cornelius the question is is this a normal practice? is this normal in the salvation of a person? when you look at Acts you would say no You had 3,000 and 5,000 saved in Jerusalem. There was no second work of the Spirit in that situation. They received the Spirit. So it's not normative in in the terms of the book of Acts. It's not even normative throughout the rest of the New Testament. As you consider, this is the only place that it's talked about. As the witness of Christ goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. We have the birth of the church and we have unusual things happening. And this is one of them. This is an exceptional circumstance. It's not the normal circumstance. You see, the apostles, Peter and John, simply here are confirming what God has already done. God has already broken open their hearts you know I think the best explanation is that God himself withheld the spirit until the coming of Peter and John in order that the Samaritans might be seen to be fully incorporated into the community of Jerusalem Christians had received the spirit of Pentecost you think about this horrible tension between the two ethnic groups if Philip had gone up there and and then came back without apostolic sort of uh, affirmation the church in Jerusalem would have said "Oh, we don't really understand that we don't really believe it's happened so I sent Peter and John down to confer, and at that time, the Spirit flowed to confer that the gospel was going to the ends of the earth. You see, the experience of the first disciples at Pentecost and these disciples in Samaria can't make the basis of a two-stage view. You can't make a strong basis for that. Because both had genuine faith in the risen Lord. You both had not received the Spirit until God decided to pour it out. Unlike you and I, here and now, where as soon as we put our faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit dwells with them. Instantaneously. that is attested elsewhere through the New Testament. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because Simon is looking on and sees these things. And he says, oh, I think it's now time for me to be a prophet for profit. He's seeing what is happening. He's seeing these signs and wonders that are associated with the outpouring of the Spirit through Philip and he says I think I'll give you a few bucks for this I really would like this magic trick I would like to understand how this happens so I can be called Simon the greatest I guess and I just love Peter's response he pretty much applies a fairly strong piece of language to Simon in verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could the gift of God with money. That is a stinging rebuke. And then he affirms, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. You think you have been saved, but you have no genuine faith. Because your heart reveals what is going on. That's what the back end of 21 says. Your heart is not right before God. That's wonderful because that there is a quote out of Psalm 78, verse 37. Your heart is not right before God. I encourage you sometime this week, go and grab Psalm 78. It's a long psalm. And put it in context and you'll understand why Peter used this psalm because as you you briefly look at psalm 78 it says these things it it talks about not hiding from your children the wonders of god it talks about the the establishment of promises to jacob so that when you see the promises to jacob you'll put your hope in god and then it proceeds to give examples of disobedience after disobedience after disobedience because the people's heart was wrong. And similar to what Peter says to Simon, your heart is far from God. And then he charges him to repent. And does Simon repent? I don't think so. Looking at the context here, I don't think so. His response is, oh, Peter, Peter, can you pray for me? There's no personal accountability for his own sin, no personal accountability for his own heart, no calling out to God to repent. And when this incident was completed... They continued to speak the word of God, verse 25, and returned to Jerusalem. And on their way, they decided, we're going to speak to all the towns on the way up to Jerusalem in Samaria. We're going to proclaim Christ. This is a, uh, a warning for us, church, when you read this and look at this. It's a warning because we have a man, Simon, who is faking faith. He walks, with, he walks with Philip. He watches Philip. I would say he almost idolizes Philip. He's watching a person. He believes the signs and wonders are, are something that are, is a magic trick that he can use for his own benefit. Sometimes, and I'm not a great television watcher of TV evangelists. I've got to say I've got better things to do with my time. You will see in this culture this practice going on where we have false prophets proclaiming a false gospel which in the end is leading people to hell. We need to be discerning, folks about what we listen to about what we see about what we watch about what we Facebook about what we like when it comes to biblical truth needs to be tested through the pages of scripture because there are charlatans this hasn't stopped there are people out there peddling a gospel for their own benefit the other question is you may even look at this and or I look at this and think okay at a practical level what does that look like here you may be involved with the church you may be sitting in the church you may be rubbing shoulders with the church but you've never put your personal faith in Christ folks that's what saves you not being involved in a community that saves you. What saves you is the power of the Spirit of God breaking your heart open as you repent of your sin and say, Lord, I'm yours. I trust in your all-sufficient sacrifice to cover me and give me eternal life. So don't play the game. Don't play a game where where. Just because you're involved in a community you think that is okay. It's about a personal faith and trust in Christ. Let's read further. We'll read the balance of chapter 8. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went and there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before a share is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom? I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Aztos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So here, this is what's happening. Philip was up here somewhere, and then he's directed to go from Jerusalem down towards Gaza, which is down here, because there's this Ethiopian eunuch who's been in Jerusalem worshipping. Now, this is not the modern-day Ethiopia. This is uh, Bible, Bible terms uh, a land called Cush. You'll read that in Genesis. And Cush is south of Egypt. My map's not big enough but south of Egypt would be down here somewhere. It would take five months to get from Cush to Jerusalem by chariot. Slow, slow chariot I must admit, but it would take five months. A significant effort for an Ethiopian to go to worship. And uh, so, but Philip sees him returning from Jerusalem somewhere between Jerusalem and Gaza. Somewhere there. And please note, it's the spirit that carries and the spirit that draws him to this meeting. And we we understand from the text that this uh, this eunuch is he's a trusted man. He is a head of a treasury of a queen, Candace. And that's more of a dynastic name rather than a personal name. So, you know, like we have uh, Queen of England Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England the dynastic name is the Queen of England bit. so Candace is the, the the broad title for the Queen of Ethiopia and we notice something about of the eunuch he is a eunuch right? what does it mean to be a eunuch? It means he's castrated why? So because he's probably involved even though with finances he's involved with a uh, woman of the court inside the king's palace and when you incarcerate a man, you're less trouble when you're amongst a bunch of women. So that's what happened in those times. Uh, yes, it's not it's not a normative thing, by the way. <laughs> uh, so this is what this is who this Ethiopian eunuch is. It's just really interesting. He came to Jerusalem to worship, but because he was a eunuch and because he was a he couldn't be a true proselyte. You read in De- De- Deuteronomy chapter 23 and um, verse 1, and it's probably not a, it's not a verse that you'd want to dwell on too much, but I'll read it for you anyway. This is um, what it says about who can go into the court of the Lord and who can worship. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So he was a eunuch that had been done to him. And he could not you know, even though he was a worshipper, he could not go into the inner sanctum. So he'd worship in the in the Gentile court. Clearly he was very wealthy as well. Unlike you and I who have multiple copies of God's word in our hands, because of the invention of the printing press back in about fourteen hundred AD, this is not the case in 60 AD to obtain a scroll was something that was quite momentous and he had his own scroll now these scrolls were somewhere between uh, 20 to 30 centimetres wide and they could vary in length from 5 metres to you know 40 metres depending on what part of Isaiah he had he may have had the whole scroll or he may have just had a portion and his scroll would have been likely in Greek being a, uh, a Gentile And that was the common language of the nation. He'd have probably a copy of the Septuagint scroll that had been made for him, that had been copied for him. A a fairly uh, valued treasure. And he was reading from Isaiah, reading from Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant. Talks about the Messiah who will come, the servant who will come, who will suffer for his people's sake. And he asks a very important question to Philip. Who is this really talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Because that was the common thought of the day, even amongst Jews, that uh, Isaiah 53 was uh, either about the nation or about Isaiah himself, not about a future suffering servant. And see what Philip does. It's wonderful. Firstly, you open his mouth. So anytime you want to be evangelist, that's a really important thing. You've got to open your mouth. You've got to be prepared to say what is going on. You've got to be prepared to tell about the wondrous story of Jesus. Open his mouth and he began with this scripture. So he began with the Isaiah portion, the Isaiah uh, 53 verses 7 and 8. This is what's quoted here. So he began with that scripture. And he told the good news about Jesus. And then we see the eunuch asks because he, he just wouldn't have stopped there. I reckon Philip would have gone on for hours telling about the good news of Jesus as they're rolling along with a slow chariot. And the eunuch stops and says, I see some water. What stopped me from being baptized? He understood that to put your faith and trust in Christ. Once you had done that, you were baptized. Right through Acts, you don't see a separation in these things. If you believed, you were baptized. You know, it's not like our Western um, church where we say, oh, you believe? We just want to test this out for a little while to make sure it's real belief. No, believe and be baptized. That's what it's teaching. Now, if you're an Anglican, you would say that what um, the eunuch saw was a puddle. If you're a Baptist, you would say, no, this is a roaring deep river. I don't know what type of body of water it was, but I do know that they both went down into the water. So either they were toe deep in it or knee deep in it. I don't know. So don't build your theology on a verse like this about whether it's full immersion or sprinkling. It doesn't matter. All right, so what is happening here is he is baptized. This shows the inward reality, or the outward reality of the inward reality. He's put his faith and trust in Christ, and he wants to display this. And Philip departs. The eunuch departs rejoicing. And then we find Philip moving from here up to here, about 20 miles north and then eventually up to Caesarea and then we come across Philip again in Acts chapter 21 on the end of Paul's third missionary journey they stop with Philip in Caesarea so Philip pretty much, I believe has been evangelising this coast for years after this event So what are the lessons we learn? We have two stories of Philip the Evangelist. We have the first one in a multiple evangelistic setting where he's preaching to a city. The second, he's one-on-one with a eunuch. We read that Philip is ready to serve. No matter what the situation, the church has been scattered the word there is dyspora. You've heard of that, haven't you? Dyspora Jews, scattered Jews. It's used three times in Acts. The word is there that the church is scattering. And even in amidst that, that persecution, he's ready to share. And he goes to a people group that are hated by his people. He's ready. He is bold in proclaiming the scriptures. If you look at this chapter, verse 4. Now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 12, now when they believed Philip as he preached good news. Verse 25, and when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord. Verse 35, when Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And verse 40, and Philip found himself, And he passed through, he preached the gospel. Central to this account, central to his evangelism is the centered on the word of God. Not on the signs and wonders, but on God's word. That is the catalyst for evangelism, folks. If you want to speak to people about Jesus, use God's word. Has the words of life. He was bold and proclaimed the scripture. He handled God's word correctly. He took this portion of Isaiah and and displayed it through to uh, the eunuch and talked about Christ. But above all, he was filled with the spirit. This work wasn't his own doing. It was spirit-led. And the power of the spirit he proclaimed. And that's no different for you and I. Don't be shy in proclaiming who Jesus is. Use God's word. Realize that you've got the spirit of God within you. Pray for those who you want to evangelize. And the Lord will do mighty things. Just as an aside and a great thing of encouragement which I, which I came across in this portion for you. You know how I talked about the eunuch and how when he came to worship, he could go, only go into the Gentile court. If you read a little bit further on in Isaiah, after Isaiah 53, you go to Isaiah 56. Let's read this quickly for you. There's a significant point. Let not the foreigner, verse 3, who has joined himself to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. See the irony in that poetry? The eunuch experiences great joy because now instead of having to worship in the outer court, he could worship the Lord of the universe. He had an everlasting name. An everlasting name that said, You are a Son of God. And he understood that because of the message of Jesus. So, Philip the Evangelist, he preached in a great crowd. He preached to individuals. He was filled by the Spirit. He proclaimed the Word of God boldly. He he proclaimed the Word of God accurately, and he was ready to serve. My question is, are you? Because that's what we're called to. As followers of Christ, you put your faith and trust in Christ, we all have the ability to proclaim the name of Jesus to be His witnesses. Invite the music team up.